Glory, hallelujah, to our Savior. The gospel that God has designed. That's essentially where we left off in our study of Romans a few weeks ago. We finished chapter 8 and finished on a very high note. That was Paul's concluding paragraph to his extended presentation of the gospel that has occupied those first eight chapters. And in that conclusion of chapter 8, he is rejoicing, and we rejoiced as well as we considered that passage before Christmas. What causes the rejoicing in that passage? What was Paul so excited about? What so thrills us? It's all about the assurance of salvation. It's guaranteed. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, to use Paul's words. That was a great uh, beginning of our Christmas celebration as we joined together in thanking the Lord over the recent weeks for the beginning of that process when Christ came to this earth. But now it's time for us to get back to the book of Romans, uh, here in Romans chapter 9. We are immediately struck by Paul's change of tone, from one of sheer joy to dark gloom. Uh, We have to wonder, just between the two chapters, what happened? Well, back in chapter 4, in his presentation of the gospel itself, Paul had made an important statement about God's chosen people in the Old Testament era. Uh, He said this, that the promise of salvation is guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. The promise of salvation is guaranteed. Well, now... In chapter 9, Paul is ready to acknowledge the historical, theological elephant in the room. And that is, despite that assurance from God, the vast majority of God's chosen people today are unsaved. Jewish people who have rejected Christ, rejected the gospel. What happened to that guarantee? We're all left wondering if God's promise to Israel didn't work out. What about us? Chapter 8 was assuring us of our salvation. When light of the Jewish situation, that doesn't seem so exciting. Doesn't seem like we really have a good basis for confidence in all of that. That's why Paul is going to take the next three chapters, a huge segment of this book, to address the situation of Israel. And if it takes them three chapters, there's clearly a lot that we need to know. But he begins it all here in this first paragraph of chapter 9 
by focusing on the doctrine of eternal security. On what basis does he issue that assurance of salvation that we saw in chapter 8? The answer takes us right back to the grace of God. The message of this portion of Scripture is that salvation is by God's grace alone. And that calls for an appropriate response. It's a generic response in one sense, but he is going to itemize that uh, as we go through this passage. But the response to God's grace is to respond in faith. To make the decision, I'm going to trust what God says. The first five verses, here's where Paul presents the problem. It's been a lurking problem throughout Romans so far, but now it's time to face this head on. (coughs) Excuse me. He says in verse 1, This is unusual for Paul. I am speaking the truth in Christ. Okay, well, we're not going to doubt that, right? Except I think he is aware that, ooh, maybe there is room for doubt on this point. But no, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Another assurance. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So he's connected the truth of what he's about to say with Christ himself, speaking the truth in Christ, and the Holy Spirit himself will confirm that what I'm saying is true. There must be a big statement coming up. Paul says that statement this way, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul is experiencing pain about a circumstance. The circumstance has directly to do with Israel. And he'll identify Israel as his brothers, his kindred in the flesh. And he's burdened because He is well aware everywhere Paul went, he went to the synagogue first and invited them to Christ and then was regularly rejected, turned out of the synagogue, and he then turned to the Gentiles. But he persisted every new city back to the Jews first. and even used those words in the opening chapter of Romans. To the Jew first, and then the Gentile. You imagine the pain in Paul's heart when time after time they reject the gospel. What Paul is agonizing over in these first three verses is something that takes place among Gentiles as well. Now, he's focused on Israel, especially in these first five verses, but throughout this paragraph. But as always, we can't write this off and say, well, that's about them. What about us? 
It's a message about us too. There's application here because what he is going to describe in these opening verses in a different way but to a similar extent is also true of everybody else. What is true is that God gives common grace to all persons. The Jews here are an example of that. God gives, and common grace is the term that theologians have chosen over the centuries to call uh, the reality that God issues benefits, undeserved benefits, to everybody. Do you have any doubt about that? That you are the recipient of God's grace? Well, let's just consider something. Apart from God's grace, where do you deserve to be? What do you deserve to be experiencing right now? And for every single person on the face of the earth, it's nothing less than eternity in hell. You might be going through some difficult circumstances right now, but if you're not in hell at this moment, it's for one reason, the grace of God. You are the beneficiary of God's grace. And now all the other good things that you enjoy, you might have convinced yourself that you deserve these things, but you do not. Every good thing going on that has ever happened and is happening now in your life is an example of God's common grace. And you're getting a bunch. I guarantee it. Well, God gives common grace to all persons. That's the overall lesson of these first five verses But he is zeroing in on the Jews as an example of that. And so the the, the problem in verses 1 through 3 that causes Paul such great sorrow and unceasing anguish of heart is that they are presuming on God's grace. And that is a tragedy. It's a tragedy when Jews do it. It's a tragedy when Gentiles do it. And it's going on all the time. This presumption is to confuse God's blessing with God's satisfaction. Look how God has blessed me. He must be satisfied with me as I am. And then to further presume that just because you're experiencing a a degree of God's blessing on your life, that you must be saved. That's the presumption of the people of Israel in our day and has been true going all the way back to Paul's day. They are well aware of their privileged position by God's grace. And they assume that that means they're good with him for eternity. You see, that's the tragedy. And with Paul, we have to say the condition of the lost is our burden. 
Paul is feeling this burden. It's a heavy burden in his life, particularly for the Jews. But of course, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. He's burdened for unsaved people of all kinds. What he's doing here is setting the pattern for all God's people. It's a burden. And it's a burden we need to feel. Deep personal grief for an individual's hardened spiritual status and eventual condemnation if they don't change. And we are talking about eternal destiny here, which is why in verse 3 we also need to be able to say with Paul that the salvation of the lost is our passion. This is important. Now, sometimes this gets elevated beyond bounds, and the, the needs of unsaved people are put ahead of God's people. Helping God's people gets demoted. Well, that's not as important because whatever their situation is, they're going to go to heaven. Unsaved people are going to go to hell, so they are the more important people. Scripture never makes that distinction. His people are important too. So we have to balance that. But part of that is a passion for the gospel, for the, the lost to receive the gospel, a passion to present the gospel at every opportunity. Paul expresses his passion in a very unusual way, but we have to understand it. In verse 3, he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul, what are you saying? You would actually choose to be cut off from Christ just so that the Jews could be saved? Isn't that kind of going overboard? Well, in fact, it is. This is a hypothetical wish. Paul knows full well that this is not possible. And even if it was possible, it wouldn't help. Only Jesus Christ is qualified to be a substitute for somebody else. Paul was not. Paul chooses this kind of terminology, this hyperbole, in order to express the depth of his passion. And notice it is especially for those that he is related to. He regards the Jewish people as part of his family. People that you know and love who do not know Christ. That becomes our passion. And then beyond that, every new city where Paul went, he's finding people there that he had never met before. He's concerned for them as well. Clearly, we don't quite measure up to this level of burden and passion, do we? 
somehow the circumstance of unsaved people is something we find fairly easy to get used to. Paul says, that's not right. We need God's grace. Asking him for grace to have a greater burden, greater passion to do something about it. Because presuming God's grace is a tragedy. On the positive side, in verses 4 and 5, enjoying God's grace is a privilege. And the Jewish people enjoys a great measure of God's grace. It actually seems really strange to be calling this God's common grace. That doesn't mean it's ordinary, because in every instance, it's extraordinary. It was for the Jews, it's, it's the same for all people. This common grace is nothing short of amazing. Look at the example of the Jews. He says they are Israelites, and so that's the term of a family connection. It's a little warmer than the word Jew or Jewish. They are Israelites. That's their family connection going back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And to them, and here Paul lists off six uh, items of their, uh, of their privilege of God's grace. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Now, that's not just a random list that Paul has accumulated. Scripture is never random. He's placed these in a, in a particular order, and some have observed that what he's identified here are two parallel columns, and across the parallel line, you see a connection. So three items and then three more. Let's look at it that way. The first one, then, is to them belong the adoption. Well, that's describing a particular historical event for the people of Israel when they had just arrived at Mount Sinai, and God said, here's the deal. I will tell you what to do and provide for all your needs, and you will become my people, that's the adoption, and you will do what I say. What do you think? And he sends Moses back down the mountain and says, tell them that and let me know what they have to say. And the people of Israel heard that, looked up at the mountain, and they said to Moses, all that the Lord says we will do. We accept. We will become your people. And we will obey what you tell us to do. That's the adoption. What immediately followed that? It's Exodus chapter 20. He gave them the law. And so that's the fourth item in this list, the first one and the second column. To them belong the adoption and the giving of the law back to back. So let's go back up to the first column. To them belong the glory. That describes the very presence of God, which sometimes is called the Shekinah glory. 
actually visible to them. The glory cloud, the pillar of fire, the cloud that occupied the tabernacle and later the temple, representing the very presence of God. Israel got to experience that. To them belongs the glory, the presence of God. And then the next uh, item in the second column, the worship. Connected to God's place in worship is the tabernacle and all the sacrifices that God instituted. The privilege of worshiping God in the way that God says. The last item in the first column, the covenants, where God issues his promises. And that's the word he uses in the second column, the word promises. All this to say that the Jews have a unique connection to God. And that's because of his grace to them. And yes, you can see, we can call it common grace because everybody gets some. But wow, this is way better than ordinary because that's how God distributes his benefits. None of this did they deserve. None of what you have do you deserve. None of it. It's God's grace. Verse 5, the Jews even go further than what uh, verse 4 described. They also have a human connection to Christ. It says, to them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the beginning of the Jewish people. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. That's the culmination of the Jewish people. And both the beginning and the culmination belong to them because of God's grace. Now, at this point, Paul adds something else that's pertinent about Christ. They have this human connection. Now, Paul says, but there is another aspect of Christ, the Messiah, and this one the Jewish people missed entirely. And that is, he is not only the son of, of, uh, of, of uh, a descendant of the Jewish nation. He's also the son of God. He is full deity as well as full humanity. And so Paul issues what is the, uh, perhaps the clearest and strongest statement of the deity of Christ in any of Paul's writings. It shows up elsewhere in the New Testament, of course, but look what Paul says about Christ. He says, who is God over all? Nothing less than that. Fully God. God over all, blessed forever. And he adds in his amen to say, truly, truly. Christ is God. The Jews, despite their human connection with Christ, deny this other essential aspect 
of Christ's person. He is sovereign, eternal deity. What privileges they enjoy. What privileges of blessing God bestows on everybody. It's different for everybody, but God's common grace, you see, he gives to every person. Last Monday evening on national TV, an NFL player suddenly collapsed on the field. His name, as most people seem to know now, is Damar Hamlin, just 24 years old. Stood up after a play and then immediately fell right over. Uh, he, He had gone into cardiac arrest. On the field, he received CPR. They were able to revive his heart and breathing He was taken to the hospital by ambulance, and the next afternoon, his life still hung in the balance. Nobody knew what was going to happen to this young man. That afternoon, uh, that set the stage for a significant worldview event in our country. During a live national broadcast, ESPN analyst Dan Orlovsky while acknowledging the cultural awkwardness of what he was about to do, announced that he was going to lead in prayer. It was amazing. The others in the studio with him dutifully bowed their heads. What? We're going to have somebody spontaneously lead in prayer on television? Can you do that in America anymore? Nobody was quite sure. This man did it. Here's the prayer he uttered. God, we come to you in these moments that we don't understand, that are hard, because we believe that you are God, and coming to and praying to you has impact. He continued, we just want to pray. Truly come to you and pray for strength for Damar for healing for Damar, for comfort for Damar. Be with his family to give them peace. I believe in prayer. We believe in prayer. We lift up Damar Hamlin's name and your name. Amen. Well, that prompted an outburst of Every communication you can think of, news reports, Twitter, Facebook, everything. People are responding to that. And every day I read the headlines from a wide array of news sources. Uh, About half of them are liberal. I didn't see the rest of the week a single criticism of Dan Orlasky praying on national television. In fact, people by the millions were saying, I'm praying for him too. Now you have to know that those millions include a lot of people that if they had been asked two days earlier, do you believe in prayer? 
No. No, that doesn't do any good. But suddenly at that moment, people believed in prayer. Damar Hamlin has made significant improvements since then. By the grace of God. He's alive today by God's grace. So how should our nation respond to that public evidence of the grace of God? They ought to respond in faith, in submission, in devotion to God, in acceptance of Jesus Christ. That's how God designs his good gifts. We're not really expecting that from our nation, though, are we? Probably life will go on as it was. All right, well, we can't do anything about them. What you can do something about is you. Because you are experiencing the grace of God as well. The question is, how are you going to respond? To respond in faith, if you don't know Christ, and say, I want him as my Savior. To respond in devotion, God, look what you've done for me. I devote myself to you. That's what God's common grace deserves. You have your own amazing array of his gracious gifts. Beyond love for the Jews, though, Paul's concern in this passage is the continuity and fulfillment of God's promises. That's what he gets to to explain now in verse 6. Yes, God gives common grace to all persons, and this becomes now a difficult truth to get a hold of. But here it is. Here's what Paul says in this passage. God gives saving grace to some people. What? He shows distinction? Well, if he does that, it must be because he sees differing value in people. This person's a little bit better, so I'll give that person saving grace. Or this person if he gets the opportunity, will trust Christ as Savior. So on that basis, I will extend to him my saving grace. All these things make us feel better. But it's not what Paul says here. He says, God gives saving grace to some persons. And there is no explanation for the distinction other than it's what God decides to do. Oh, that does sound challenging, doesn't it? All right, let's see how Paul says it. Still focusing on explaining the circumstance that most Jewish people are unsaved today. Verses 6 through 9, Paul points out from Jewish history, and he quotes the Old Testament here uh, throughout uh, the rest of these verses to let us know he's not being innovative. 
This all has a solid biblical basis on what Paul is saying. And he says in these verses that God chose just one of Abraham's children. Abraham had more than one. He had more than two. You remember, after Sarah died, he married another woman. He had a bunch more children. Amazing. How old is Abraham at that point? He's up in his 160s. Way up there. Still having children. But Paul's point is he chose just one of Abraham's children in distributing his saving grace. So verse 6, he says, It is not as though the word of God has failed. Well, good, Paul. That's what we needed to know. Well, let me show you why that's true, Paul says. God's word has not failed. His promises are still intact. His word is still true. But here's what we need to understand. Verses 6 and 7, spiritual connection to God is narrower than a physical connection. He says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Wait a minute, Paul. This is getting confusing. This sounds like double talk. Not everybody who belongs to Israel is really Israel. Uh, Well, see, terminology fails us here. What Paul is saying is that within this category of Israel, all of them receiving God's common grace in in amazing ways, but only some of them receive his saving grace. Last part of verse 6 again, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Specifically, we think of Ishmael. He is part of Abraham's offspring. But in another sense, he's not included among, God's, among Abraham's children. The distinction is God's decision. Because here he quotes God. He says, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's the son I choose. Because Isaac was better than Ishmael? No. Just because God chose. As verse 8 goes on to say, personal relationship with God is narrower than the general relationship of his common grace. Saving grace is a smaller focus than his common grace. Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh, physical descent from Abraham, who are children of God. That's an important statement. Children of God, he's talking about actual salvation. Well, it's not the physical descent from Abraham that counts, But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. 
counted there is a word Paul has used in earlier chapters. It means regarded as righteous. It's a word he used for Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted. He was reckoned as righteous. That's saving grace. Well, it's the children of the promise who are counted as his offspring. What is this promise? The promise he delineates in verse 9, again quoting the Old Testament, for this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return, God will return, and Sarah shall have a son. What's the promise? The promise is a direct act of God's intervention. Abraham, you're way too old to have a son. Sarah is way too old to be a mother. But I am going to act. And that direct supernatural act of God represents what goes on when God issues saving grace. It takes his work to save. Where God overrules by his power, human weakness. Human weakness cannot earn salvation. And so God gives it to some. God chose just one of Abraham's children, He makes a further point in verses 10 through 13. He chose just one of Isaac's children. This is important because some might say, well, I know why he didn't choose Ishmael. She's the son, he's the son of another woman and an Egyptian of all things, a foreigner. Sure, he picked Isaac. Okay, well then let's take another test case. Let's look at Rebecca. Isaac only had one wife. Rebecca, in verse 10, not only so, but when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, now it's one mother and one father. But Paul's statement actually is a little tighter than that. It's not just that it's one man and one woman. It's that it that that the birth that's about to be announced happened at one act of conception. They're twins. No distinction there. Paul makes that point, and he drives it home, and he says in verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. Nothing on the record. Paul can't say, uh, God's not saying here, I see that you've done some bad things in some ethereal past circumstance. No. No good. No bad. No basis for distinction in order that God's purpose of election might continue. The very goal God is achieving by doing it this way, he says, is at stake here. What is that goal? What is God's purpose? That salvation be not because of works, 
but because of him who calls. You see, this is why we can say salvation is by grace alone. You contributed nothing. And that's God's purpose. Why would he do that? Let's speculate just quickly. Because in any other arrangement, God has to share the glory with us for our salvation. The only way God can be the only one who gets any credit for anything is if he alone did it all. They've done nothing, either good or bad. God's grace ignores human merit. In fact, it sees none. There is nothing good for God to respond to. And finally, verses 12 and 13, quoting the Old Testament again, it is God's grace alone that bestows divine favor. Verse verse 12, he says, that is why she was told, God told Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. Why? Only because that's God's choice. Furthermore, and this one bothers us even a little more, as it is written, this is in the first chapter of Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Oh, no, that is just too much to bear. God hated Esau. All right, keep in mind, for God, this is not an emotion he feels. It's just a decision. It's an action that he takes. And the contrast here between love and hate, what does it mean that he loved uh, Jacob? It means he chose to grant him saving grace. What does it mean then that he hated? doesn't mean he despised Esau. It just meant he decided not to choose him. Paul is going to argue in the rest of this chapter, as we'll see coming up, that that's God's right and that there is nothing wrong with that. God gives common grace to everybody, way more than anybody deserves. And he gives saving grace to some, not because some deserve it, but just because that's what he wants to do. That accomplishes his purpose. That alone can bring him the most glory. Is that difficult for us to accept? One time there was a man who commented to his pastor, uh, Pastor, I've, I've decided I, I'm just not going to pray for my unsaved friends anymore. He said, I've been reading Romans chapter 9, and I find out it's, it's all about God's choice. What can they do about it? The pastor responded by saying, well, was there ever a time in your life that you rejected Christ? says, yes, there was a period of time like that. He says, what did you do about it? I decided to accept Christ as Savior. 
He said, exactly. Don't stop with Romans chapter 9. That's where Paul is defending God's right to do this and why some Jews get saved, praise the Lord, and why right now most of them do not. It's because it's God's choice. It's not a failure of God's word or of God's promise. But we're going to get to chapter 10 where he emphasizes the other side of this equation and says, I'm going to quote this exactly because otherwise I'm going to shift in my mind to the King James Version, which is fine, but here's what the, how the ESV translates it. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, there is no basis for anyone to say, oh boy, I want to get saved, but I don't think God chose me. That's a false dilemma. Go ahead and choose Christ. Okay, I will. You're in. God chose you too. And see, that's our dilemma. How can God choose on no basis other than that's what he wants to do, and people choose? And the two choices always agree. I don't know. Don't ask me that question afterward. I, I think the uh, ABF discussion uh, could be pretty interesting uh, coming up. But don't ask that question. We don't know. It's a mystery. But it's what God says. God issues saving grace to some. You want to be a part of that? Choose Christ. You have some unsaved family and friends you've been praying for a long time. Are they still breathing? Then there's still hope. You pray earnestly. You offer the gospel with clarity. Because Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What a God. What grace. Can we respond with anything less than faith in this God? Trust in his grace. Devotion to his service. I admit, this is a challenging passage, but here's the truth that Paul is declaring. I urge you, ask for his help right now to accept the truth. Just believe what he says. Whether you can get your mind around this or not, I believe what God says. I trust his grace, and I devote myself to him. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we acknowledge that some things that you have said in this portion of Scripture are challenging for our limited minds. Father, we ask for grace then to believe 
all that you have said, to, to resist the urge to try to water it down to a way that makes more sense to us. Father, we believe what you have said. Would you help us respond to your grace, your common grace and your saving grace. Father, help us to respond in faith. And may that faith show in how we live. May it show in our burden for the lost. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.